Have you ever been convinced that you're doing something in the right way, only to discover you've been doing it completely wrong? Maybe it's following directions, watching a YouTube video and thinking that you're doing it the right way, but then realizing at the end you've done it terribly wrong. Uh, maybe it's a, uh, an, an playing a board game. Anybody ever have that experience where you've played a board game a certain way your whole life, and then you go play it at someone else's house only to learn that you should have read the rules, and uh, you've playing it, you're playing it completely wrong? Maybe you've had an experience where you've pronounced a word your whole life the wrong way. I had that experience recently with Joel's name. Uh, for a long time, I was calling him Joel. Uh, you ever have that sort of moment? Well, this, this past week, I had one of those moments. Anybody who does text messaging knows what emojis are, right? You know what emojis are? I'll, let's do a little quiz with, with emojis. I'm going to show you a couple emojis, and you just tell me what, what they mean. Here's the, here's the first one. What's that emoji? Thumbs up, right? Good job. Somebody says, you want to hang out tonight? Thumbs up means yes, we're good to go. What's the next emoji? What's that mean? Thumbs down. Yeah, if somebody texts you something you don't like, thumbs down. How about this one? We'll get a little trickier. Celebrating, right? Celebrating something wonderful. Last night, yesterday, Yankees won against the Red Sox. Took them 16 or 17 innings, but they did it. And so praise him, right? Uh, that's a, how about this one? Pray, right? So somebody sends you something and, and has a prayer request. This is the prayer hand emoji. Or at least that's what I thought. And this week, somebody sent me something, and it shows a picture of somebody searching for a high-five emoji. And look what pops up. I thought that it's the prayer hand emoji. My whole life is a lie. That's what somebody, that's what somebody sent to me. They thought it was the prayer emoji, but it was actually the high five emoji. You know, um, the implications of sending a high five emoji, uh, I, I actually feel like we should, everybody should know what emoji that is because it makes a difference, right? If I think it's a high five emoji and you think it's a prayer emoji, it's two very different things. If somebody sends you terrible news, like my girlfriend just broke up with me, high five, right? It doesn't make any sense. My kid's in the hospital, high five. I just lost my job, high five. You're trying to say, well, I'll pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm praying for you now. But anyway, so it was a very eye-opening moment for me this week. Sometimes we think we are right when we are wrong. In John chapter 6, Jesus preaches a sermon, and I'm calling it this morning the worst sermon ever. The reason why I'm calling it the worst sermon ever is because, well, there's really two reasons. One, I think people left that day saying that. That was the worst sermon ever. That's the worst sermon I've ever heard. But I also am calling it the worst sermon ever because look at the result. We're going to skip all the way to the end. In John chapter 6, verse 66, when Jesus preaches the sermon, this is what it says. After the sermon, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, as a preacher, that's the exact opposite of what I want a sermon to do. I want a sermon to cause people to want to walk with Jesus, to desire to walk with Jesus. But as a result, many turned away and no longer walked with him, saying this was the worst sermon I've ever heard. Now, why? Why was it the worst sermon? Because Jesus, I'm going to give you an overview here. I'm going to answer the question, and then we're going to look at the sermon. Jesus told the audience something that I've already suggested this morning. You think you're doing something right, but you're doing it completely wrong. You think you're sending the prayer hand emoji but you're sending the high five emoji. Jesus was essentially saying to the audience that day, your whole life is a lie. 
And uh, nobody wanted to hear that. How does this story begin? Let's start at the beginning of John chapter 6, verse 1. Less than 24 hours before this scene where the disciples leave and walk away from Jesus, what we see is one of the most incredible miracles, one of the most incredible stories recorded in the Gospels. And this is Jesus feeding 5,000 or more with just five loaves and two fish. Are you familiar with this story? Jesus has been teaching all day. The people are hungry. There's a crowd of 5,000 men. That's all the Bible says. So there probably was more than that because of the women and children. So maybe up to 10,000 people are there and it's getting to dinner time and Jesus' disciples are like, how are we going to feed all these people? And so they, they, they survey the crowd and they find that there is a boy there that has five loaves and two fish. His mom, he had a good mom who packed him a lunch. And he comes in, he shows up with this, these loaves and this fish and Jesus takes this and multiplies it and feeds everybody. Not only feeds everybody, but there's leftovers. Now, can you imagine what the people are thinking when they see this happen? Well, what would you be thinking? I mean, here's a man who can miraculously multiply food to feed a hungry crowd. He has this sort of ability and this sort of power. I'm sure they're wondering, what else can he do? What else might be possible? This is a game changer. What would you be thinking if you were sitting in that crowd and you watch him take five loaves, two fish, break them up and divide them, and then feed a crowd of almost 10,000 people? Crazy, yeah. You know what I would be thinking? Next time, someone hand him a steak and some lobster, right? <laughs> Instead of some bread and some fish. But So they see this and they do exactly what you and I would have done. They chase him down. They won't let him out of their sights. They, they friend him on Facebook. They follow him on Twitter. And when they, when they find him the next morning on the other side of the sea, they ask him how he got there. And then he launches into this sermon that we're going to look at. And he challenges them in this sermon with some very straightforward language and with one very uh, uncomfortable metaphor. And in this sermon, the worst sermon ever, we learn three things that Jesus is not. And listen, this is so important for us this morning, because what if for your entire life you think you've been following Jesus only to learn that you haven't? You think you've been doing it right, but you've actually been doing it wrong. So there's a lot at stake here. So let's jump right into it this morning. The first thing that we learn in this message that Jesus offers us in John chapter 6 is that Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is not a means to an end. Isn't it true that in our lives we do so many things as a means to an end? Like, for example, I go to the YMCA a few mornings a week and work out a little bit. And if we were to poll all the people in the gyms in Syracuse and ask them, why are you working out? Most of them would say something like, I want to be healthy. I want to lower my blood pressure. I want to lose some weight. Some people would say, I want to look good for someone. I got to get into my beach body. I got to get into a wedding outfit. You know, there's all different things, all different reasons. It's all means to an end. Why are you working out? The working out is what? It's a means to a greater end. We do this in life. Even with our jobs, when we go to work, we, we work hard so that we can provide for our families and so that we have money with which to be generous. Well, what about when it comes to following Jesus? Is following Jesus a means to an end? Are we following Jesus so that we can get something out of it? And in verse 25, it says that when the crowd found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? In other words, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father, 
has set his seal. Here's basically what Jesus is saying to them. You're here for things besides me. You didn't come here for me. You came here because your bellies were full. And you're hoping that I can meet all of your needs in that way. You're not, it's not me you're after. It's the stuff that you think I can do for you. It's the stuff that you think I can get for you, that I can provide for you. At work, I have a little uh, candy uh, jar, a little candy dish, where I put different candies from people come in and visit me so that they can help themselves. And years ago, I used to put the, the lint chocolate truffles in there. You know what those are? They're expensive though, so I stopped doing that. But the lint chocolate truffles and the red ones, the milk chocolate ones, that's the ones I would put in there. I like the blue, I like dark chocolate, so I like the blue ones or the black ones. But the red ones are the milk chocolate ones. And, and when Lilia was little and she would come into my office, she would see it and she would always want one. Well, she would sometimes send me messages either through Aaron or somehow and say, bring me one home. Bring me, bring me one of those chocolates home when you come home from work. And so I would, I would some days, I would grab one on my way out the door and I would bring it home to her. And whenever I would walk into the door, instead of looking at me, she was, she was looking, I had my hand behind my back. She was trying to look around me. She, she wasn't excited that I was home. She was hoping that what was in my hand was a lint chocolate truffle. It wasn't me she was after in that moment. It was what I had in my hand for her. Now, Jesus had done some wonderful miracles and signs, but let's never forget that a sign's primary purpose is to point to something else. A sign's primary purpose is to point to something else. When you're driving down a three-way and you see the sign for uh, a rest stop, no one pulls over at the actual sign and rests, right? That's crazy. You know that the sign exists to point to something else. And so when Jesus did what he did in the beginning of this chapter, taking the bread and the fish and breaking it and multiplying it and feeding the masses, that was a sign that was intended to point to something else. Don't worship the sign. Worship who the sign points to. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't set your deepest hopes on the signs, but set your hope on the one that the signs point to. Don't chase the signs, pursue Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, it's not me that you're actually pursuing, it's what you think I can do for you. You think that I can make your life easier, that I can make your life happier, that I can make you healthier, that I can make you wealthier, and so you're pursuing me as a means to an end. But Jesus is saying, I'm not a means to an end, and I can't be used that way. And it offends the crowd here. Now, Jesus may choose to do some of these things in our lives, right? There are ways in which hasn't Jesus made your life better, right? Aren't there ways in which he's brought joy and peace and comfort into your lives? And those are just the results of his nature and his character and who he is. But there's a difference between experiencing those things because we're in relationship with Jesus and making those things the pursuit, that we're pursuing happiness, we're pursuing health, We're pursuing wealth, and Jesus is really just useful to get what our hearts really find beautiful. He may choose to do these things, but he's better than any of them. That's the point here. He's worth your love and affection. Listen to this. Hear this. Jesus is worth your love and affection even if none of those things come your way. Even if you lose everything, Jesus is still worth your love and your affection. Job learned this lesson. In Job 13, 15, Job says this powerful phrase, though he slay me, Yet, I will trust him. Here's a man who had everything taken from him, really, almost everything taken from him. And he comes to this place in his heart where he says, even if you take the very last thing I have, which is the breath in my body from me, I'm still going to trust you. That's not seeing Jesus as a means to an end. That's saying you're worthy in and of yourself. 
separated from what you do for me. And listen, here's the warning to us this morning. If your relationship with Jesus, if your pursuit of Jesus is centered on getting other things, if Jesus is just a means to an end, then you'll never make it through the darkest days of your life with your faith intact. You'll never make it through the worst seasons of your life with your faith intact because one of two things will happen from your perspective. Either Jesus' usefulness to you will have run its course or Jesus' faithfulness to you will be in doubt and in question because he's no longer useful to you to get you what you really want and he must not be faithful to you anymore because you're not getting the things that you really are setting your heart upon. And so he rebukes them and he says, I'm not a means to an end. The second thing in this uh, sermon that we learn is simply this. Jesus is not only not a means to an end, Jesus is not, now this is going to sound counterintuitive at first, so let me finish my thought. Jesus is not an example to follow. Jesus is not an example to follow. I probably should have put another word in this statement which says something like this. Jesus is not just an example to follow, or Jesus is not simply an example to follow. But essentially, here's what he's saying. I'm not just an example to follow. Let's look at the text again. We're going to read verses 28 to 33. The crowd says to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What do we have to do? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus is beginning to introduce this metaphor. This is his first of seven different I am statements in the gospel. And he's about to say, I am what? The bread of life. And here he is introducing it really because the crowd has brought up this Old Testament story about manna, that, that, that when they were in the wilderness, there was manna on the ground six days a week for them to eat. And they're saying, Moses did this for us. And Jesus said, no, Moses didn't do that for you. God did that for you, but guess what God's doing for you right now? He's giving you bread of life. That bread didn't last forever. In fact, every day they had to get new bread because that bread corrupted and went bad and spoiled. But Jesus is saying there's a bread that comes from heaven that gives life to this world. In verse 28, did you notice what the people asked Jesus? They said, give us or tell us the works that God requires and we will perform them. This is very important. The audience, the crowd chasing Jesus say, tell us what to do and we'll do it. Give us the works. In other words, they're saying, give us a checklist, something to do, something to measure. In other words, here's what they're saying. Give us a way to earn our way into the kingdom. Give us, and here's the heart of that request. Give me control of my own salvation. Give me control. As long as I have control of my own salvation, then the only person I really have to live grateful towards is myself. As long as I have control of my own salvation, then there's a limit to what God can ask of me because I've earned it and God sort of owes me salvation. And this is the heart of this crowd here. And it's still the heart in Christians today 
Tell us what to do so that we can do it. Give us an example to follow and we'll follow it. Show us how to prove that we're righteous and we'll prove it. And this is simply called works righteousness. This is not the righteousness that is provided in Jesus. This is the righteousness that we try to provide for ourselves. In other words, here's my resume. Here's my impressive performance record. Now, does it earn something for me? Give us the works. Give us the way to do it. And in verse 29, Jesus blows up their paradigm of what it means to be a follower of God, a child of God. And Jesus simply says, this is the work of God. Believe in me. That's the work. The work is not do this, do that, follow my example perfectly. That's never going to get you into the kingdom. The only thing that's going to get you into the kingdom is heart-level belief in me. Believe in the one that God has sent. What we learn here is that the work of the Christian is faith, to place saving faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. This is not abstract, theoretical, hypothetical faith. This is fully functioning faith. Feet on the ground, faith. That doesn't just change what we do on Sunday mornings, but changes the way we live the rest of our lives. Faith that pervades everything about us, the way that you interact with people at the workplace, the way that you interact with your neighbors, the way that you raise your children, the way that you care for people, the way that you handle yourself on social media, faith that functions everywhere, that is not in any way compartmentalized to something sacred, but actually runs rampant in every area of our lives, fully functioning faith. You know what I love about what Jesus says here is believe in me, believe in him who sent me. This is what I love about what Jesus says here. He doesn't speak to the amount of the faith. He speaks to the object of the faith. You're not saved by the amount of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. Does that make sense? You might have, people might have a lot of faith in the wrong things. is isn't gonna save them. But if you have the faith of a mustard seed in the right thing, it's gonna save you. So so some of us, sometimes in our lives, we spend so much energy trying to manufacture lots of faith, lots of faith, lots of faith. But faith in what? What's the object of your faith? Sometimes the object of your faith is that you'll get what you want. And so I have all this faith. I'm I'm gonna muster up all this faith so that God gives me the outcome in life that I think I deserve and want. And if I have enough faith, God will give me what I want. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says what makes your faith powerful is not the amount of it, but the direction of it, the object of it. Who are you placing your faith in? As Jesus is saying, I'm not just an example to follow here. It's more than that. You have to put your faith in me. Works righteousness, I think, is throughout the church everywhere. Martin Luther would say this, that it's actually the default mode of the human heart. Without hearing the gospel, receiving the gospel, believing the gospel every single day, this is what Martin Luther would say, your heart will always drift back to works righteousness. You proving yourself. You performing. You placing your faith in your own ability to perform. There's a few problems with works righteousness, and I want to I give you a few issues with works righteousness. The first issue with works righteousness is this. Even our good works are for the wrong reasons. If, you, if your heart is filled with this works righteousness religion, then even your best deeds, your good works will be done with the wrong, for the wrong reasons. On August 21st, 1995, the cover of the New York Times, there was an article that said this. The CIA reexamines hiring of ex-terrorist as agent. 
don't know if any of you remember this. This was actually a pretty big deal in the middle of the 90s. The CIA examines the hiring of an ex-terrorist to now be an agent for them. Essentially, here's what we learned in that story that, that day. The agency, the CIA, had on its payroll a man whose information was actually great. He was one of their best informants, one of their best spies, one of their greatest assets. He actually helped them catch a man, maybe you've heard of him before, the notorious Carlos the Jackal, who was a self-proclaimed terrorist who authored terrorist acts that killed over 80 people. And so it was this guy's information that led to the arrest of Carlos the the Jackal. But here's the problem. The informer had once been a terrorist himself. And he had participated in two bombings in Western Europe in the 1980s that had actually wounded Americans. So you can imagine the tension here. They have this informant that's helping them, but his past is is very terrible, especially his acts of terrorism towards Americans. In the mid-1990s, the CIA came under great scrutiny for situations just like this because of congressional oversight. And under the pressure of Congress, they did a purge of their assets, What I mean is they severed ties with their spies. So guys like him were kind of hung out to dry. They said, listen, we got to reevaluate your past. And now that we've kind of got this new standard of who we're going to work with and who we're not going to work with, we're not going to work with you anymore. And they cut ties with this man. Now, I learned about this story listening to a podcast called Revisionist History. And it's done by an author named Malcolm Gladwell. And what I found most interesting about the story, I mean, the whole story is fascinating. But what I found most interesting about this story is when he talked about the way that this man became a spy for America. You ever wondered, how does that happen? How does somebody turn someone to become someone who gives us information about the cause that they've given their entire life to? And they were saying in the podcast that with most spies, it's actually a very difficult process. You gotta befriend them, you gotta earn their trust, and it's, it's obviously very dangerous trying to, trying to convince somebody to become a spy for your country. But with this guy... You know what he did? He walked into an embassy, asked to talk to somebody, and introduced himself and said, I want to be a spy for you. That's very unusual. That doesn't happen. Why would this guy, after a lifetime of terrorist acts in the Middle East, why would this guy walk into the American embassy in the country that he was in, basically turn himself in and say, this is who I am, this is what I've done, I want to be a spy for you. And this is what he said when when they asked him, why are you doing this? He said this. He didn't want money, which is normally what it's about. He didn't even want money. He said this. I'm doing this for my conscience. This is an act of expitiation. Expitiation, which is basically to get this darkness off my soul. I want to do something. Expiation, sorry, I said it wrong. Expiation is the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. He basically said, I want to atone for my past. So I want to start doing good things. I think there's a lot of people sitting in churches who actually are the same way as this guy. They're doing good things now, but the reason they're doing good things is because they feel guilty. They want to clear their conscience. Maybe it's not even your past from many, many years ago. Maybe it's just a mistake you made this past week. And so you're in church this morning thinking, I hope this balances the scale out. I hope that by being here this morning and raising my hand during singing and putting some money in the offering plate, I hope that I have atoned for my sin. And that is works righteousness. Because the very heart of the gospel says this, you can't atone for your sin. 
You don't have the right currency to pay the price for your sin. But the good news is you don't have to atone for your sin because Jesus atoned for your sin on the cross. On the cross, he did the word of expiation. He took our curse upon himself. And so works righteousness is actually a refusal of receiving Jesus' atoning work on your behalf because you're still trying to atone for yourself. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have nothing to atone for, but you have everything to be grateful for. Those are two very different things. Nothing to atone for, but everything to be grateful for. The other problem with works righteousness is that, this is very interesting to me, um, I said first, our good works are done with the wrong motivations. But secondly, our good works can even lead to bad works. Now, I actually learned this also listening to this same, a similar podcast. And they were talking about this new concept in social psychology. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before. It's called moral licensing. Moral licensing. Let me define it for you. Moral licensing is this. Past good deeds can liberate a person to engage in behavior that is immoral, unethical, and otherwise problematic. Behaviors that they would otherwise avoid for fear of feeling or appearing immoral. Let me just break that down a little bit. Here's what moral licensing means. When you've done a lot of good things, somehow it frees the human heart up to do bad things. It's your, you feel like you've done a lot of stuff. You've been a very moral person. And so because I've been this good this long... Eh, I can do this. It's not a big deal. I've done all these good things. When we do something good, sometimes we give ourselves permission to do something bad. This is called moral licensing. This is a sort of a new thought that they're developing in social psychology. But here, here's what it means in our walk with Jesus. When we believe that there is a good works spectrum, and we kind of think of Jesus as Santa Claus, who keeps a list naughty and nice and the good things you've done and the bad things you've done, when we think that there's a good and bad spectrum and that we just need to be on this side of it, I just got to be more good than I am bad, then sometimes we actually do bad things thinking we've done so many good things. It really doesn't matter. I mean, if I do this, I mean, I've been so faithful at my work. If I, if I cheat on this little thing, the, the majority of my record is good. This little thing isn't going to hurt me. This is the problem with thinking about our works more than Jesus' work on our behalf. That we begin to think, as long as I've been more good than I've been bad, when the gospel says we're all the way bad, the only hope we have is that Jesus was all the way good for us, in our place, as our substitute. The other problem is that our good works can sometimes take the place of a good God. There was an interesting thing in verse 32. I don't know if you noticed it, but when they were talking about Moses, there was a shift in verb tense. It went from saying, Moses gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread from heaven. Present tense, a shift from the past tense to the present tense in verse 32. What Moses gave versus what God gives. What did Moses give us? Past tense. What did Moses give us? He gave us the law. Moses gave us the law. Now, the law is, you can't separate God from his law. You can't even separate God's love from his law. If you separate God's love from God's law, you don't have God's law anymore. And if you separate God's law from God's love, you don't have God's love anymore. You need both of those. But ultimately, God gave us the law through Moses. But for what purpose? So that we could save ourselves? Was that the checklist that we've needed our whole lives? No, the Bible makes it clear that the law was given primarily for two reasons. Number one, to prove to you that you can't save yourself. And if you've broken the law at any point, Jesus says you broke the entire law. So you're not just a little bit of a lawbreaker. You're an all-in lawbreaker. You've broken everything. 
So number one, the law was given to show us that we can't keep the law. But number two, the law was given, and it's very clear in the New Testament, to lead us to Jesus. To point our hearts to Jesus as the one true law keeper. God used Moses to provide things like bread and the sacrificial system that were only a foreshadowing of what God was going to give to us in Jesus, and he still is giving to us. In fact, in this verse, we didn't read it, but if you skip ahead a little bit, we'll see that even the faith we exercise is the fruit of God's work. In verse 37, it says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In verse 44, it's even clearer. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So it's always the Father's work, even our calling out to God, even our coming to God, even your placing faith in Jesus is a result of God's activity. You've never done anything righteous, lasting, fruitful for the kingdom that isn't a direct result of God's ongoing activity in your heart and in your life. And this is what Jesus is saying. Hey, I'm not just an example to follow. I mean, you can try to follow my example. Good luck, but it's much more than that. And they didn't like that. The human heart doesn't like that. We like to be able to measure ourselves against other people. We like to know how much good we've done and how much bad other people have done. We just like that. And Jesus says it's not the kingdom. So the last thought this morning that Jesus says in this story is this. Not only am I not a means to an end, not only am I not an example to follow, but I am not an add-on to life. This fall, I'm speaking at a conference out in Portland, Oregon, and my brother lives in Las Vegas, and so I haven't been able to visit him yet, and I thought, well, let's try and make this happen. On my way back, I'm going to stop in Vegas for about 48 hours and spend some time with my brother. So I had to book a little flight from, from Portland to Vegas. It's not very far, and so I'm just looking for the best deal. Well, there was an airline on Expedia that popped up that I've never seen before because I don't think they fly on this side of the country, and it's called Spirit. Spirit Airlines. Feels like Christians should be traveling on that, right? So, so, so Spirit Airlines. And better than that, because I don't care about all that, I'm going to go with the cheapest price. I don't care what the airline's named. Um, better than that, it was a $54 flight. I thought, $54 from Portland to Vegas. I mean, I can't get to New York City from Syracuse for $54. Like, that's really good. So without, it, without investigating, I booked the flight. Any of you flown Spirit Airlines, familiar at all with Spirit Airlines? Here's the thing with Spirit Airlines. Literally, everything is an add-on. Like, I know most airlines, you got to pay for a checked bag, but with Spirit, you got to pay for your carry-on. You know how most airlines, you can go and pick your seat out? With Spirit, you got to pay to pick your seat out. So it was a $54 flight, but $30 for my carry-on and $15 to pick my seat. It's those add-ons, and, 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 and there's no free food on the flight either, even, this, even just a glass of water. So that's Spirit's business model. They sell you a super cheap ticket, and if you're flying light, you're golden, but if you're flying like everyone actually flies, then you're not, because they're, they're adding on. I'm nervous I'm going to get there, and they'll be like, if you want to wear both your shoes on this plane, it's going to be an extra $2, or they're going to weigh me, and then I'm going to have to really pay. We, we live in a world of add-ons and upgrades, right? Whether it's travel or if you're buying a vehicle, they're always trying to say, you can upgrade the vehicle and you can get the leather and you can get the power this and you can get that. Or even fast food, right? Supersize your meal. You can add on things. You can upgrade things. Well, Jesus is saying here, I'm not an add-on to life. 
Now, let me explain this. Jesus has set up this metaphor that he's the bread of life. But in these verses, this is where he pushes the metaphor. And this is where what he says really causes problems. In verse 52, it says, The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because Jesus has been talking about this metaphor. If I'm the bread of life, you've got to eat my flesh. So Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, can you understand why people were like, what in the world is he talking about? Can you understand why people left going, that was the worst sermon ever? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you don't, you don't have life. Jesus uses very difficult language here, doesn't he, about eating his flesh. It sounds like cannibalism, but of course it's, it's not. It's not at all. Actually, I was looking at a commentary on this passage. D.A. Carson has a wonderful commentary on the book of John, and he brought something out that I thought was interesting. He said, you know, as a society, we're actually more familiar with this metaphor than we may realize. And he gave some examples. We devour books. We drink in lectures, we swallow stories, we ruminate on ideas, we chew over a matter, we eat our own words, and doting grandparents declare that they could just eat up their grandchildren. You ever heard that? I could just eat your little face. Well, nobody goes, oh, that's creepy. Like, why would you do? We get it. It's a metaphor that we actually understand, but it it really, it hit the audience in such a way that it caused many of them to leave. Well, what is Jesus saying here when he says, you got to eat my flesh and you got to drink my blood? There's a couple different views on this text. And some people say he's really foreshadowing, almost exclusively he's foreshadowing communion, the Lord's Supper. It's probably not what's happening here because the book of John pays almost no attention to that. But he's also, it's also in there a little bit. So it's not the point of it. So what's the point of it? The point is simply this. Jesus is telling the people who want to follow him as a means to an end, who want a list of things to do so they can earn something, and who want to just add him on to their life. They just want to enhance their life. They want Jesus as a life enhancer. He's saying to them, listen, knowing me and following me is intimate and involved beyond anything you would ever imagine. Knowing me and following me is intimate and involved beyond anything you could possibly imagine. He's saying, I'm not an add-on to life. Listen, I am life. I'm not an add-on to life. I am life. Jesus came to this earth to give us life, right? He says it in John, to give us life here, full, abundant life here, but also to give us eternal life. That's, both of those statements are in the Gospels. But Jesus came to give us life, but not life apart from himself. Sometimes people think of Jesus that way. Jesus, give me peace. Give me comfort. Give me joy. Give me life. You know what he's saying? I am peace. I am joy. I am comfort. I am life. I can't give it to you apart from giving you myself. you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You, you want life? You have to take me in. You want peace? You have to be intimate with me. You want joy? I have to go through every fiber of your being. Jesus isn't handing out things and standing back and saying, I hope you enjoy it. Jesus is saying, if you want life, you got to take me. 
If you want peace, you got to take me. There's no peace apart from Jesus. There's no comfort apart from Jesus. There's no joy apart from Jesus. And so many times people live out their faith in such a way that, Jesus, when I hit the situation, would you just download into my system some peace? Would you give me a little comfort? Would you give me a little joy? And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to give you myself. I can't give you those things apart from me. And he's also pointing to what it's eventually going to take for him to actually bring true life to us. His broken body, his shed blood. This is what Jesus had to do. In order to give us life, he had to choose death. In order to feed our souls with the bread from heaven, he had to have his body broken and torn apart. And in order for him to satisfy our souls with living water, Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath, draining every last ounce of God's wrath for us. Drink all of his judgment, let it all pour upon him. And to use an Old Testament metaphor, Jesus had to be the rock in the wilderness that was struck with the rod of God's judgment so that out of it could come living water for all of us. It's the only hope we have is that Jesus, the bread of heaven, satisfies. Jesus, the living water of heaven, satisfies. Jesus is not a means to an end. He's not an example to follow. He's not an add-on to life. Here's what Jesus is according to this message. Jesus is the bread of life that we all hunger for. Every hunger and desire and thirst that exists in the human soul is ultimately crying out for the bread of life, for the water from heaven. Jesus finishes this sermon, the worst sermon ever, and what happens? Well, in verse 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. (laughs) Who can listen to this? Like, do you kind of wonder what Peter and John and James were thinking? They're like, Jesus, uh, 24 hours earlier, everybody was ready to make you king. Tens of thousands of people were going to leave their homes and follow you. Did you really have to preach this sermon next? Like, couldn't you have done something a little more seeker friendly? Couldn't you have done something about your love and your grace and your mercy? Could you have not been so weird, Jesus? Why'd you have to be so weird? Look, everybody's leaving and it's just us again. (laughs) We're just back where we were before. Jesus isn't interested in just gathering a crowd, is he? He's not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. A lot of people are fans of Jesus. Ah, he's a good idea. He's a, I like him. He's, he's cool. He was a good teacher. He'll make your life better. He'll make you happy. Not, he's looking for followers, people who will eat his flesh and drink his blood. And in verse 66, we, we end where we started. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turns to the 12 apostles and says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. One time where Peter got it right. (laughs) Where else are we going to go? Yeah, we could leave you too. But you alone are... Peter, somehow, somehow the coin dropped for him in this moment. Your life... You have the words of life. You are the word that's come from heaven to earth, full of grace and truth for us. So at the end of this sermon, the worst sermon ever, there's really two responses. People either left or they stayed. But more so than that, people either left thinking this is crazy and I want nothing to do with it, or they stayed with a fresh realization of this is all I've ever needed. This is everything I need. 
And the response to Jesus has not changed 2,000 years later. It's still the same. People are either going to walk away and say, I don't, want, I, I don't want Jesus that way. I want him on my terms. I want him to give me these things. I want him to be these things for me. I want him to show me how to live so that I can earn my own salvation. I want him to enhance my life, to strengthen my life, to do all these wonderful things. I, I don't want a Jesus that requires everything of me. Or you're going to have people who are going to see Jesus for who he really is and say, where else could I go? I've tried other things. Leaves you hungry. Leaves you thirsty. Hungrier and thirstier than when you started. But Jesus, you alone satisfy my heart and my soul. And so the result of the sermon that day in John chapter 6, can I suggest that it will be the exact same result in this room this morning? Some of us will say we'll feel strengthened in our hearts there's no one else but Jesus. And some of us will have to examine our hearts and say, maybe, I'm, maybe I am using Jesus as a means to an end. Maybe I am using Jesus only as a way to give me an example of how I should live so that I can earn my salvation. Or maybe I am using Jesus only as an add-on to life. Here's what I want to, here's what I want to end this morning a little differently. I want to lead us into a time of prayer. Uh, but what I want us to do is I want us to pray for one another. And using this idea at the end where it says, either you're going to stay or you're going to go. And it's true of every person in this room. Now, let me add this. You know that you can physically stay without relationally staying, right? You know that? Marriages die way before they actually sign the papers, right? You can physically stay in church, but relationally be far away from God. So I'm not talking about just who shows up on Sunday morning. Because if I was talking about that, then what would be the point of having this prayer time? You're all here. But some of us are going to relationally stay and press in and say, Jesus, you're all I need. You're all I've ever needed. And please convince me of that truth by the work of your spirit. Or some of us are going to walk away. And, and even if we agree up here, when we start to live our life tomorrow at work, we're going to be back to this sort of faith that won't last, that won't survive, that won't make it through.